live from Sydney. This is Yitzi Tobol, Building Jerusalem. Zevi Slavin. Uh, Zevi is a teacher and practitioner of mysticism. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, tell me, you studied in a couple of different yeshivas. Yes. Uh, very, like, pretty mainstream institutions. Very, very mainstream Chabad yeshivas, that's right. As always. Um, was, when you were in there, did you feel like, oh, this is, this is like, my, my vibe? Or did you feel like this is my vibe plus a little bit on the side? Or, like, what was, the, what was going on for you? So my main yeshiva experiences were one year in L.A. Mm. and then another in New York after spending some time in Masifta here in Sydney. Yeah. Let the yeshiva in L.A., Earl Khan and Chabad, um, was, I felt very much at home there. I felt very challenged in a positive way. Um, and I like, had a lot of growth there, like a small group of good friends. Um, the next... Whoa, 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 hold on. If that was the positive one, I don't want to know the rest. <laughs> but, but, like, you're... Well, I mean, like, like let's back up a, a couple of seconds now. Like, how are you right now? How am I right now? Yeah. In terms of what? I don't know. Just how are you feeling? I'm good. I did some, like, physical work today, so my lower back is, like, a bit tight. Mm-hmm. But, like, a good sore. Um, I narrowly, narrowly avoided death today. Yeah, I almost got crushed <laughs> by this very large vehicle that, like... Yeah like began to tilt towards me and then stopped, but it could have just kept tilting. So I feel very lucky to be still be alive and like, you're like, yeah, you're still alive. It's very, it's very like key to like the mystical experience, you know, the yeah. symbolic death and rebirth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely having like that moment of like flash, be like, this is where it ends. And then like you imagine like, oh, he was like a sweet 25 year old, such a shame. And then like, it's nice to like remember death, like commonly, like mm. every day and then, you feel like life is fresh post that. Do you have, like, I know you've read a, I've read a bunch on this stuff. Do you have any, um, uh, like, a, a form of that you particularly enjoy? Because, like, there are a bunch of um, that idea of, like, oh, remember death every day. It's like, I've, I see it everywhere. Mm. Like, the samurai manuals do mm. it really well. Mm. Um, like, there's the, uh, the the Roman general on Triumph would have a guy who stood on their tari- chariot mm. Mm. as they rode through the streets. Is right, there right. Um, I, I guess my practice for that is like for my own tradition from Hasidism, mm. um, which is in mikvah. When you go underneath the water, you're no longer breathing. And if you were to stay there, you would be dead like in a short time. So because you're dead in potential, you're already like somewhat dead. Um, and that's like a really good moment to like get in touch with death and rebirth again. Really? Yeah. yeah. Ari Kaplan writes about this in his little book on mikvah. Huh. Yeah. And like you re-exit the waters of the mikvah, like you re-exit the waters of the womb. There's a lot of good symbolism right there. That's interesting. Do you know where he gets his stuff off? Um, I have to look at his sources, but I'm sure it's all well quoted. He's quite the scholar. Mm-hmm. And it's no surprise that like Christianity very early on took on baptism, mikvah, right? And that yeah. became central to like... To their practice as well. Well, I, I mean, I had um, I had uh, a chat with with David Zanwell the mm, other day. Nice, nice. You met him as yes, well. Yes, yes. Um, and he he's he's uh, what the interreligious officer for ADL. Shout out last episode. Um, <laughs> great chat. 
But um, one of the things he really um, stressed, which I really liked, was you got to distinguish between um, oh, it's the religion, um, the religion of Jesus, and the mm. religion about, about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've heard the, this uh, line. The, the diadache and the kerygma, the teachings of and the teachings about, is the is like the Greek. Say that again in Greek. Is it Greek or Latin? Probably Latin. Mm. Diadache is like teachings, like didactic, and then kerygma is like the gospel about the belief in JC, which then brings salvation. But then there's just like the teachings of the man himself, and that's the that's that would be the religion of versus right. the religion about. Right. So when you say like um, uh, you know it, it, baptism shows up, like mikvah shows up early, it's like well, it's it seems to still be there while it's still Judaism. Oh, absolutely. Like, whoever I mean, John the Baptist is, like Yonatan, whoever. Bill, yeah. Not yeah. Like the Baptist, yeah. They, he didn't call himself the Baptist. Like, that was <laughs> definitely not happening. Right. Probably not the... <laughs> John the Tabler. <laughs> right. Exactly. Go see John the Tabler. John the Tabler next to John the Balagola. <laughs> yeah. I have, this, I have this, like, fan theory about that moment because, like, it, it's, it's this moment in the New Testament where he's like... Ah, oh, the one who follows me, um, I won't be worthy to carry his sandals. I'm thinking, of course you can't carry his sandals. You're baptizing people. You want to be Tome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, good pick up. Ritual impurity on shoes is an important consideration. Right, right, right. Yeah, we forget like how these traditions like was like really just very Jewish in their origin and in their makeup. Mm. And I mean, there's a lot of like spiritual power to these rituals. I mean, it's no surprise that like the Hasidic movement takes up mikvah in a big way. And when like most of the world is just going to mikvah like before Yom Kippur, hmm. the Hasidic community is going to mikvah every single day. Like these traditions are picked up again and again. It's almost like the like the originators of these new mo- like moments or movements are like sifting through Jewish ritual to find some like a moment of genius which they can re bring back to their communities. And I think mikvah is one of those. Hmm. Yeah, amongst many. You're like, we're like sifting through looking for gold. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how do I see you, it. Do you feel like mikvah was like, because, uh, you know, like the, within within the Jewish tradition, like mikvah is um, like, it's it's a really central a central thing for women, but it's like sort of an optional extra for dudes. Yeah. But like within the Hasidic community, it's really big for dudes. Yeah. Like guys are like super into the mikvah. And is that like, do you feel like that that's a sort of like cultural ebb and flow? Like there are times in the past where like, Mikvah was really big for the Jews as like for Jewish guys, and then it sort of um, ebbed like subsided mm, again. And mm. then like the Hasidic masters are like, "Oh, we should bring this back. This was good." Yeah, I mean, I'm not like super like uh, I don't have like the history of mikvah on my sleeve, but in temple times, mikvah was critical for men and women because mm. you had to be you had to be tired to go, you had to be like ritually pure to go into the temple space. There was like a fence. Um, and if you cross that while you were impure, you were in big trouble. Um, it seems like, I mean, I could very easily find out, but it seems like mikvah lost its popularity um, post-temple times in, in exile. It's also hard. Like now we have the convenience of having like these indomikas when you're living out poor and roughing it in, like in Europe. It's not that easy, like, mm. unless you're finding like a, like a spring or something. Nah, but, wouldn't wouldn't want to jump in the water anywhere north of the Mediterranean. Right, exactly. Not, not happening. I mean, people did, people. But the, one of the principles of Chassidus was Kaddish Atzmachavet Mashumotalach, like sanctify yourself yeah. with those things that you're not obligated to do, but you choose to take upon yourself. So mikvah is a perfect thing. It's like there's no obligation for a man to do it, besides for a rare occasion. Here's an opportunity for you to go above, you know, the requirements of the law and do an act that will like connect you with God, with yourself, with those around you. Hmm. Yeah. Because well, in in that sense, I think it's like the the word chassid is even being used in like the traditional sense. Because a chassid, I think, mm. in the Gemara meant mm-hmm. someone who 
went above the... Who goes, yeah, the term there is, is lifnim mishrasadin, who goes beyond. The term chassid, by the way, is really fascinating and has been used like dozens of times for different groups throughout Jewish history hmm. from like biblical times through Second Temple period, through like Chassidi Ashkenaz. And it's, it has the most like r- like really like wild connotations. Um, like the Gemara says, Ezo chassid, hamas chassid in kainai. Who is a chassid? Someone that does kindness to his creator. Like how do you how are you kind how do you do kindness to God like how does that work It's usually the other way around. I'm I'm waiting for I'm waiting to see someone who's done like a full historical study of movements that have appropriated that word. Um, yeah, it's just a really it's a really interesting term that's been used again and again by interesting people. Mm. I, I'm I'm thinking about when you say like since biblical times I think in the Book of Samuel the word shows up doesn't it? Yeah, it shows up in the Book of Psalms as well. It shows up. Um, there's, there's a group of, of um, in sort of the dead in the so the Dead Sea Scrolls like written likely by the Essenes, mm. um, which some say which some identify with the Hasidim Hasidim Harashanim the Mishnah speaks about. It's just used like again and again. Um, it was it was on my mind this week. And um, what the word the word Hasid is the, 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 the word, word Hasid and and its and its historical association with different movements like how how that word was 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 found and, and, and reused and. Yeah, it would be interesting. To, it would be an interesting study. You, when you pull that thread a bit, what do you find? You, I mean, from like you begin just like pull up those association connotations. You think about the times that it's used in Mishnah and Pirkei Avos. You think about um, so we speak about the the Midas Chassidim or the uh, we speak about the, the Tzaddik, the Rasha, the um, and and the Chassid, and like you you start to see how these words are being used. Righteous man, wicked man, intermediate man. Um, no, so the Baini would, Bainini would be the, the intermediate. Chassid is something else. Chassid is like this pietist, this um, somewhat, it seems like he has somewhat of a, of like a aloof nature to him or her, where they're like sort of, they don't really care that much about their belongings. They're kind of these itinerant, you know, beings. I mean, and then, I mean, you have obviously the massive, I think it's 12th century, the Chassid Ashkenaz, the um, German Chassidim, which is sort of a precursor to to what we know as Chassidus today, the 18th century, so there's like a couple key moments where you have, the, the Gemara speaks about the, the Chassidim HaRashonim that would, that would daven for, what was it, nine hours a day, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a group called Chassidim, like Chassidim HaRashonim, and they, they, that meant something. It was a sociological label that was applied to a group of people. And the, the early pietists. The early pietists. So who are these early pietists? Who are the, who are the middle pietists? Who are the later pietists? What's their connection? Like, do they... Yeah, people like uh, Eliezer Worms is, is one of the Chassidi Ashkenaz. The Rakeach is one of the Chassidi Ashkenaz. These are like incredible characters. So that's, um, yeah, that's where the thread begins to pull. Hmm. And what do you, do you feel like the Baal Shem Tiv's, what, what we understand, the modern movement of Chassidi, the mm-hmm. Baal Shem Tiv's thing, do you see the, him as like directly carrying the, the, the flame of this word? Or do you feel like it's a bunch of like slightly similar movements that get labeled with the same word? Um, no, I think I see it more as the former. I think that, I think, I mean, you'd have to obviously do some, do some reading to prove this, but I think that there's an intentional desire on behalf of those movements to be reframed themselves in terms of those past movements. Mm. So they'll call, I mean, they're not labeled externally, hey, those are the Hasidim. Like they, it seems like they take that term upon themselves and in doing so to, to, to reappropriate those, that idea mm. so what is that what is what is that idea for the people and what, what connotations is it carrying how is that embodied and you see that in like in the chassidim one like a big thing which is obviously when the gemara said they go beyond the beyond the letter of the law or they're looking to get in touch with the spirit of the law 
that that becomes a big part of like Hasidus in the modern sense that we know it. Mm. So it seems like it's very conscientious, it's very conscious that they're taking that term and wanting to almost resurrect it to, to re-embody that that ideal that's that's been dead for a while. It's interesting it's interesting you point out that they then they name themselves as opposed to being named from the outside. Um, because <clears throat> um, I think for one one of the, the sort of like base principles that goes on in like the long the long scale um, Jewish traditional conversation across history that seemed like like everyone in the all the all the people chatting in the Talmud would like take this as a given is that you're really really familiar with like word word choice mm, mm. in like the the fundamental text mm. like you notice when like a word shows up you're like oh it's been used seven times before right, and like right. here 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 and here right um, and like like the every word is seen as like carrying its implications all the time everywhere it goes mm, right right yeah so so for a, a serious sage a burning period to say this movement should be called the Hasidim you know it's it's it has to be self-aware yeah yeah certainly it's not being done sort of un- unconscious of, of the history of that word and its usages mm. so it's interesting we call we call God a Hasid right What's, what do we say we say Hasidim that God is God is a chassid or practices chassid in all these actions. Yeah, I mean these so those connotations are all like deeply steeped, and as in Hebrew they're like, they're like tied into the word. You start thinking about chassid, you start thinking about like you can't escape those connotations in Hebrew. Hmm. Hmm. So what's what's like um, what would you say? When you're when you're thinking of that word, do you feel like it's something that that you understand roughly the same as other people, and like you got a little bit of extra, or like completely, um, it's a completely different thing from what how everyone understands it. People today, yeah. Um, I I mean I choose to see that word as a very like lofty title. It's like, like you aspire to that, rather exactly. Than I know yeah, absolutely, default, yeah. absolutely. Um, and I know that chasa can have like pejorative connotations. Like chasa could mean like a backward person, you know, un, like unwoke. What's going on in the world? Like chasa is like uh, he's like a chasa, you know, he's like sort of a bit a bit detached from reality. But my my grandma had this great. My grandma grew up not in a chabad family. She grew up in a gera family, chasidi hmm. gur. Um, and people would ask us so and some of her most of her sisters they were family mainly of girls those that survived the war uh, most people would ask her so are you still a, a Gera Hasid or I heard you're a Lavachur are you a Chabad Hasid so she would say I'm trying to be so yeah you don't just you don't just like be a Hasid oh right? I'm trying to be so I think what we can aspire to be people that try to be Hasidim yeah know? but Hasidim yeah Hasid is definitely like a very beautiful I think it's a way that we have to start using again. Like, and it, I mean, in sort of the neo Hasidic movement, they're taking back or, you know, reappropriating again the word Hasid, hmm. which I think is really beautiful because it gives you an ideal to live up to and it gives you all those historical connotations that come with that word. It's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I've noticed this as well. Like this, um, uh, you know, the band Zusha? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I, to me, like when I think neo Hasid, I think of them. Zusha, nice. Yeah, good association. Like, yeah, but whenever I'm trying to, whenever I'm trying to like, like explain to someone why Zusha is so cool, it's like, no, you don't get it. They have the three guys and they have different length beards. <laughs> <laughs> like that's nice. I'm like, no, they're different lengths. <laughs> they're entirely different lengths. Entirely different. Yeah. Lengths. You only get it when you see it, but they really are. 
Yeah, but it's good. I mean, and again, another example of that word being used again for a new community that's in some way continuous and some way discontinuous from its previous usage. Mm. And I think that's awesome. Mm. Mm. Yeah. When I when I think Niyochas, I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of Zalman um, Shachta Shlomi and Shlomo Kalbach and Buber and Heschel and... Uh, and uh, Hillel Zeitlin and Aaron Zeitlin, but... Oh, oh, the Heilige Zeitlin. <laughs> yeah. Hillel Zeitlin, I think it was. You know how, you know how he, um, I think he was in the, in the Warsaw Ghetto, you know about his, his biography at all? A little, not, not enough. Oh, yeah, so I, oh, yeah, go on. I, 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 like, I don't know if you've heard the same story, but I heard that he was in the Warsaw Ghetto when they, they were, yeah. when they were taking him yeah, out, yeah. and they taking all the youth out, yeah. he, he left wearing collars and tefillin and carrying his With own. With a in yeah. his hand, yeah, 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 wow. 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 It's incredible. I mean, because he, he also left for a period and went off exploring and he went into his own heresies and he was very into Nietzsche and yeah. he was very much into and then he comes back and to to Dial Kiddush Hashem with a with Talis and Film and Zayar. Like what a what a what a moment. What, what a, a long, strange trip. What a what a return to be like reunited with God in such like a like dark but beautiful way. Yeah. It's incredible, yeah. It's interesting you mention um the like a, a bunch of these people, because like you know, Rupila Island, obviously, like he he's um, he's one of this phenomenon. But it's like again and again and again, you have like I see a sort of parallel. So you have like the Baal Shem Tov that mm-hmm. starts the whole modern Hasidic movement. Mm-hmm. He, his main disciple is the Magid of Mezrich, and mm-hmm. then the Magid of Mezrich has like his table, yeah. like a whole lot of guys. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tend to stand up individually when naming, you know, <laughs> nice. but like. Then and then each of them go and start their own um, movements, their yeah, own Hasidic yeah. movements, and then like you sort of have this like really interesting um, mirror of that in in the twentieth century with Lubavitch, mm. because like the Lubavitch Rebbe doesn't really have like a, a successor mm. as such, mm. but he does have like a whole bunch of guys that he like trains up, mm. and then like a whole bunch of guys like he trains up like end up like spinning off oh interesting so you're not talking about like the shluchim you're talking about the, the spin-offs yeah wow that's very interesting think about who broadly qualifies as a chabad spin-off right so revabram yeshua heschel yeah um shechter i mean shlomo kalba okay like again and again again like none of these people were wearing like um black jackets of course yeah um but like all of them were like big Eden in their own way. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, controversial yeah. in a whole yeah. bunch of ways. Big. Yeah. I think, I think it's like, there's a bit of a, I think it's a, like, there's definitely what to compare there. Yeah. I think there's a somewhat different phenomenon and this really could just be because of how close we are to them in time. Mm. So we see more of the humanity up close and perhaps like with a bit of passage of time, like that will drift away and it will become more hagiography uh, and they'll get cleaned up as uh, individuals. That would be amazing. Right? But I, like, yeah, so I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm like, maybe, but I also like low key. I just think like, I really buy into the, uh, uh, people in the past. You like, do buy into that. You I like do. That. I do. Right. I think a big part of it is just like this really like simple practical consideration, which is like, like what sort of conditions produce, what sort of conditions produce good mystics on mm. mass, mm. you know? And like, whatever they are, is probably not like, like, hundred percent market penetration of smartphones. Right. Like it's probably not that. <laughs> right, right. That's that's not right. ideal. Right. But like you know, having a lot of time by yourself in Europe, you know, mm. having a lot so of time. So you think there is something quality, 
something qualitative differently about those people in those lives I think so. versus the yeah I think so too which is what I wanted to say I think that like as much as we can make the comparison mm. the individuals who are closer to us like these new rebaim quote unquote are very human very um, human and they're like very flawed and they have like lots to apologize for as well and lots to like answer for I was thinking I was talking about this with someone today about like a lot of these characters who I'm really interested in um, someone like R.D. Lang or Alan Watts um, or Abzalman I mean, they all had like a lot of issues, like substance abuse, um, spousal abuse, even some, which is like really hard to apologize mm-hmm. for. A lot of them have like really shattered inner lives, and they're, they're not like perfect people. Like when we want to think about a rabbi, we want to think about someone who's like angelic, who's perfect, who's like sinless. Um, but it's almost like they're a bame that we get in 2019, who are really similar to us and really like human like us, and we can think about like how did they how did they go through their own mess and how did they try to find the beauty in themselves and in others and share that with us? Mm-hmm. And so there's something like hard to compare with earlier, perfect or beam, but something perhaps more pertinent and like more God sent for 2019. More approachable in some sense. Yeah. More approachable and more like deeply human, you know? Mm. Yeah. I don't, I, so, so I connect to them and I, I feel their struggle and I, and I see my own struggle in, in their light and I, like, I hope to to transcend it and, and, like, do something good and positive, which I think these people did. Like, I don't think we should, like, discount all the good they did because no. of... But, but equally not to forget, like, the troubledness that Sure. They, they well, I, I think, like, that's, that's a very Hasidic view. Um, like, I think... Um, I, I had some... I was having some discussion with someone in Melbourne a couple of months ago about, like, levels of religious practice. Mm. And, um, and I sort of... The conversation was, was really interesting, and, and it occurred to me that... Um, I, and I think this is the Hasidic view fundamentally. This is the Baal Shem's view fundamentally. It's like um, you assume zero, assume mm. like like at this at this what with this level of, of of civilization at this level of degeneration of the faith. Like mm. just assume mm. everyone's right, right, lost, right, and then like right. every sheep you get anywhere right. close to the corral is like right. is on is value. Every right. every deed that someone does, it's like what part of the the the, the poetry of, of devotion right. that was once like the, the general state like yeah, every yeah, sp- yeah. like every precious like, respect yeah you gather those in and you're thankful for them right exactly you take them and you hold them close yeah it's very much the approach of of uh, Reb Levi Yitzchak I was just thinking of him yeah he specialized that there's way. this there's this amazing medrash that um, speaks about when 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 Moses falls on his face in front of God. And typically it's understood that he falls in his face because he hears the 13, the 13 attributes of mercy. And when he hears uh, the, the attribute of truth, he can't, he can't like remain standing in front of truth. So he gets down on like on his face. Um, but the Medrash says that he, he bows down. Who says that? The Medrash. Yeah. I, I don't know which, I have to find the source exactly, but um, pretty well known Medrash. Medrash writes that, that Moses, while he's seeing like these attributes He's seeing all of history flash in front of him. Oof. And as he gets them to the attribute of truth, Amos, he sees the last generation, like the last generation of exile before redemption, which we believe we're in. And he's like, if those, like, and he sees that they're still like clinging on to some little, little, like twisted, like sparks that fell from Sinai. And he like, he just falls in his face. Like he can't, like he can't stay standing. Like he's, he's humbled deeply by that. Mm. So there is, yeah, there's something to be said about like, about <laughs> the little bits that we have still incredible yeah and, and so i mean for me like i come at it with it i try to come at it you know trying to be a hustler trying to come at it with like a perspective mm-hmm. like gratitude and like 
you know, positivity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's cool that, you know, that, that, this, that these tiny things are being done, that these mm. small sparks are being kept going here and there. Um, and, and, like, I think with that perspective, like, starting from that view, then, like, you look at, like, a lot of, like, the 20th century Jewish religious projects in all sorts of ways, like, you know, humble and flawed as they were, like, they have, like, s- profound effects. Mm. Like, you can, you can still, like, walk around and, like, find, like, people all over the world who will say, like, oh, yeah, this and this, you know, was what reached me when mm. I was, like, mm. somewhere like, totally unlike in particular? I, I mean, like, you know, I'm thinking of a whole bunch of examples, yeah. but I don't know which of them would be right. Russian hard actually say. <laughs> okay, so broad, broad terms. Keep it, keep it open, yeah. Yeah, but also, but also like, I... I um, <clears throat> It occurs to me that this is something that I'd want to ask you for a while. Um, and, you know, now seems as good as a chance as ever because um, we actually grew up in the same city. Mm. I didn't really know you back, mm. back in Sydney. But then when I was living in Jerusalem, um, somehow, like, you showed up again. Right. And, like, it was clear to me that, like, a lot had happened in the intervening time, yeah, yeah, like, the yeah. journey between city yeah. and Jerusalem. But, like, I don't really know much about it. Like, you, you want to tell me how that started? How, how I ended up... In Jerusalem, yeah, like oh, how that how that got moving, like what was the what right. was the first right? Okay, so it's an interesting story. It is interesting how like people like when they're younger will be together and then like like two rivers that like drift apart and go at their own speed and find their own detours and then they'll mm-hmm. like merge once again. It is interesting. Um, what happened was, let's see, that time that I was in Israel, I I had been on shlichus in Cape Town. I was working for Garden Shul, which was an amazing time. I was ended up being there for two years, um, a year longer than I expected. I did my smith there as well. I was teaching in high school. And I got interested in um, in Jewish philosophy, but also in early Christianity and began reading on the New Testament and the literature, sort of the academic literature on the New Testament. Uh, I found it really interesting and fascinating as looking at it as, as a Jewish moment in history. Um, before it becomes a Christian movement in its entirety. And um, I, looking at it as a, as a Jewish object, I began looking at the New Testament as a Jewish piece of literature, mm-hmm. which is, I know, a very vague thing to say, Jewish piece of literature, and people might not be happy to hear me call it that. But Yeah, well, this is not one of my uncontroversial episodes, okay. like, expecting the hate mail, no. Good. It's, it's going to be all right. It's yeah. going to be all right. I was looking, partic- to be very specific, I was looking particularly at the hermeneutical methods mm. that the author employs. So the methods that... Um, one of the Gospels uses to interpret. Hermeneutics just means interpretation of texts or, or other things, but mainly text in this context. Um, the, way that, that, the way that the author um, of the first Gospel is interpreting prophecies in Tanakh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, just, I, saw it, I saw it like immediately as a very Jewish methodology of Madras that he was mm-hmm. using. And because we've missed that, um, by and large, we get into all sorts of senseless debates about about what these verses are supposed to mean. And if I think we, if we read them in the original context, that whole debate just becomes silly because you realize that, they're not, that the verses are being used very differently for the way that they're being assumed to be used in the debate. But um, so I, I'd written this piece up by myself. I was just sort of researching and reading and, and I wanted to like show something for what I'd written. So for what I'd read, so I wrote up this piece. It was I don't know, like 150, 200 pages. And I sent it to like some New Testament scholars. Australia actually has some very high quality, like world-class New Testament scholars. There's Ian Young here at Sydney Uni. There are others in Melbourne. And I sent it for some like feedback. Um, and I got some really great feedback. Um, and somehow it made its way to this Christian organization, um, Catholic organization, surprisingly, 
Um, I was dealing with a lot of Protestant scholars predominantly because those are really the ones that are engaging with the text in that way. But um, this Catholic organization, they call them, funnily enough, the Chabad of Catholicism. <laughs> They're very Jesuits? No, no. Uh, oh, Franciscans. No, 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 no. It's a small, it's a small movement. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the Neocatechumenal Way. Mm. Like catechism as in, as in sort of educational path of teaching. So neocatechumenal, like to re-educate. And they do like a lot of inreach to Catholics to make them more from Catholics in some That's sense. So and they invited me to, with some other rabbis, to present uh, at this conference in Israel, which they were holding. It was like a free ticket to Israel. I'm like, sure, why not? I get to hang out with like people that are interested in the same subject as I am. I'm no longer into that subject. Like that's been shelved and finished right. and moved on, thank God, into bigger and better things, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after the conference, I'm like, oh, I'm Israel. I may as well hang around. So I started traveling around the country, more or less with like a backpack and tent and just like hitchhike wherever people were heading and set up camp wherever people were going. Mostly people t- like 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 beaches and forests and rivers oh. and like craters, just like wherever, wherever like the wind took me. It was really awesome. So the wind took me to Jerusalem and um, took me down to Amy Graffin and I got to hang out in your place. We had a beautiful time with you. So thank you for, for having me back then. Oh, you're very welcome. While I was drifting and, and wandering and homeless. So, uh, so you went to the conference and you're like, no, I'm just going to hit the road for a while. Um, well, there was a bit of like, it was, it's actually really funny. Like to, I should have done like a, like a video timeline, like a picture timeline. I came to the conference like suit and tie, black <laughs> shoes. <laughs> By the end, it was like one pair of pants, like open toe sandals, like messy hair. Mm. Um, I went to that first conference. Um, and a, f- a friend of mine from Sydney, Comrade Quid, um, was at a conference on history of the Holocaust and medicine like a sort of, um, and he invited me to crash that conference. So I went out there for a few days, just why not just have some fun. Um, there was a guy there who was presenting on Nazi philosophy and vitalism, which I was already interested in a bit of mysticism and vitalism sort of has its connections there into mysticism. The Nazis had a very like bizarre, yeah, had a very complex, uh, and like strange relationship to, to mysticism, which, um, I'll have to explore in my exploration of mysticism. Um, so there was one conference, then a second conference. Then I was teaching for a little while up in Sfat. I was teaching Kabbalah, quote unquote. Um, and then I was, uh, I hung out at another institution for a while. And then like slowly I just like let go of, of any like safety and security that I had. And I remember like the first night or two I'm like okay where am I going to sleep should I go back home should I go to my cousins here in Israel do I need to like pull out a credit card and I'm like no no I'm not going to do any of that I'm just going to like see if I can rough it on my own and I ended up sleeping like on a rooftop in Jerusalem and it was pretty cold and miserable and then for the next few days like my entire day was preoccupied with okay like where am I going to sleep tonight Hmm. and it was like a matter of like finding friends finding couches like just drifting around and then, then I found, I was down, I drifted down sort of to this, um, this place down towards a lot. And in the back, they had like this whole lot of thrown out tents because they were all like damaged and torn. I took one of them and I had like a little like needle and thread and I sewed up like the tear along the side. Um, and then I like, got back on the road and I had this like shift in perspective where it's like I'm no longer homeless looking for a couch to crash mm. or looking for a place to drift on. Like, I'm like a turtle. I have my shell on my back and I can pop it down. The entire Israel is my backyard. And immediately I felt so liberated and so comfortable. And when the sun set, I popped up my tent and, and went to sleep and then continued traveling wherever. And it, like, in that moment, I had an entire 360. And for the next, 
yeah, so it was like one or two months probably of like drifting around and couch surfing. And then the next six, seven months, I was just a free person. I was like home free. And I just, I went wherever and I slept wherever and I did whatever and had an amazing, amazing, incredible experience. It's that moment of like letting go of like the reins of life, which we like white knuckle was like, was really, really profound for me. Hmm. I think it's uh, in, in the Talmud, Rabbi Eliezer says, if I have it right, um, any man who has bread in his basket mm. and asks, what shall I eat tomorrow, mm. Mm. is of but little faith. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So learning to, learning to like have that faith, even, even when like you don't see any bread in your basket, but like you trust that like God will send it to you the next day. I had, like you won't, will not believe, like I was not like a hardcore like believer in like Hashkacha practice, like in like God's, you know, divine providence, making sure that everything works out just fine in the moment. But I had the most insane experiences. Like I would be, I would, I would be needing something. I would like pray to God. I'd be like, Hey, you know, it'd be really great if you could help me out. And then boom, like it would just rock up. Like the wildest story, like I cannot even make this up. I was, I spent Shalos um, with some friends, with some new friends that I just met on like a river um, in the place is called um, um, near Deganya, uh, Yardinit, just like where, where the Kinneret runs off, where the Kinneret runs off um, down eventually into the, into the Dead Sea. And like we didn't, they brought some food, we brought some food, but it wasn't really enough. And Shabbos afternoon, we were all kind of like hungry and it was really hot. So the only place we could be was either in the shade or in the water. So I was in the water and I'm like, hey God, you know, I'm really hungry. It'd be really great. Like if we got some food and then like, <laughs> I, I swear, I can't make this up. A huge watermelon came bobbing down the river <laughs> out of nowhere. I was like, huh, a massive watermelon. We like, we like, Slap it out of the water and cut it up. It was the sweetest, oh. juiciest, freshest, like straight gift from God. Oh. In all likelihood, like someone upstream was camping and it just like rolled out of their bag. But the fact that that happened then and they like just let it go and it came to us at that moment, it was really like you see God's hand, like just, and I use that word very loosely, but like just moving like these small things around. And like I really became much more of a believer. Like, yeah, I'm still like, like properly like skeptical and, and like I'm not like, into the whole like new agey vibes but it like it really changed me like just throwing myself into the arms of the universe and seeing it like embrace me and like and, and give me love it was mm. incredible yeah it's, it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting uh tension i guess that i i think i've experienced something similar where like you have your um position of scholarship Mm-hmm. Like you understand how to weigh evidence, mm-hmm. you understand mm-hmm. how, yeah, yeah, and then you you understand like what the literature says about this sort of thing, and then you like go through a bit of this, and you're like, ah, oh, I see. Um, something I found really useful was um, as a framing mechanism was uh, this, I, this I got from my friend Alexander Price. He mm-hmm. said, uh, I think he got gets it from like Robert Anton Wilson, maybe mm-hmm. something called maybe space. Maybe space, nice. Okay, it's like. Yeah, so you're gonna you have these things like is that is that just like the hard numbers? Is something going on here? Maybe this, maybe this, and just like be there. Be in the maybe. Yeah, be in the maybe. Yeah. Don't worry about yeah. like clamping down where you yeah. have and just keep, yeah. like, you know keep keep rolling forward. Um, and that I find that I found that really useful because it allowed me to sort of um, uh, like I get because I, I think you have to have that scholar brain. You have to be able to like assess evidence right. fundamentally. Right. For sure. But, like, if all you're doing is, like, assessing evidence, you can't write, for instance, yeah. right? The creative yeah. process is not, a, like, a critical um, assessing process. You have to let process. yourself go at some point. Yeah, it's a, 
it's an intuitive process. It's something yeah. you live through. Um, and I think like a lot of this stuff, like it's really difficult to like pray properly and analyze the process mm. of prayer at the mm. same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is something which I struggle with as well. Yeah, there's that moment of of having to realize that you're doing something irrational, and and be okay with that. Like because the world, like as much as we can rationalize it, there is still like a lot of irrationality, and that's where like a lot of beauty and mystery is. And I, like this is not usually how I talk. Usually I'm like, no, bro. Like look at the statistics, look at the numbers. That yeah. just that just how it worked. You got lucky. Um, but I think there's something also like deeper here perhaps, which is that like, I'm looking for the, the nature of reality. Um, and also like the nature of the human, like what, like what, when you strip everything else away, like what lies underneath that? Is there a goodness? Is there, is there like a a love at the bottom? This is sounding like very like strange and metaphysical, but we like interact so much with people today, like online. And people with that like space, with that barrier of a screen, for some reason, or like the barrier of like a window screen, like when they're driving their car, have a lot of like hatred, a lot of vitriol, a lot of rage and a lot of, a lot of uh, anxiety. Mm. But if you can like meet a human face to face and kind of strip them away, I th- and this is what, and, and I, f- I feel then you do find like goodness and you find caring, you find love and you find embrace and you find like the reciprocation of like fellow humanness. Um, and that was really interesting, like throwing myself at people as, as a stranger and be like, hey, here I am. Um, I, I, had this, I had this crazy morning in Jerusalem. Um, I try to stay away from the big cities. I wasn't in Jerusalem often, but I woke up one morning and um, I was tenting and this like Israeli woman is screaming at me like to, to leave. She's like, she's like, I'm going to call the police on you. And uh, she's like, you can't be camping here. You may be dangerous. And like in my Hebrew, I'm trying to explain to her, like, hey, I'm not dangerous. I'm just like a dude, just chilling, just wanted to place to sleep the night. But she was like, she was like, she's like, you have to go now. I'm going to call the police. Like she was really agitated. Uh, and then the second woman comes out from her apartment. She sees the whole commotion and she's like, oh, no, no, no. I know him and invites me in, invites me in for breakfast. I use a the shower there. Um, her daughter's going off to New York. I, I give, I spend half an hour with her telling her like what to do in New York, where to go, like people to meet, places to see. Um, and just had a great show. And I was like, what, like, what made you invite me? And she's like, you know, I was your age two once. And I was also like backpacking. I was also being stupid and like hanging out on people's property. And, but you just see like, and I'm like, my belief is that the first woman as well, like the woman that went berserk on me, if like, there would have just been been a moment for her to like see the common humanity as well. Like that would have dissipated too. So my hypothesis is that like, also like, if you can extrapolate from human nature Mm. to like the nature of the cosmos in general, which I know is like a very much of an anthropomorphization, which is not like, which we should not be doing. Well, <laughs> common, uh, many will say that you should not be doing it. Let's right. say that. But I mean, I after, we really shouldn't be after, doing it. After all, as much as we know about the cosmos is through our, it's only through our perception mm. and interpretation. So it has to be anthropomorphized. Mm. There is no cosmos, you know, outside of our, our observation of it. Whoa. Well, well let me tell you. Um, I, think, I think if you start with the premise... If you start with like the premise of material rationalism and work and work up from there, um, what you still find is that like the the thing maybe or at least one of the things that humans do probably the thing they do is like they interact with other humans, mm. right? Like the the whole the the, the neofrontal cortex exists to interact with other humans. Mm. Like we have whites in our eyes mm. so that we can watch each other's eyes and mm. like communicate with a whole extra mm. level of of depth. Mm. Um, but like what's what's um what's going on there is that like 
the human, like every different animals are specialized to different systems and the human is specialized to the human system. Mm. And you, you don't, you like, people just don't have much in the way of like, um, detached intellectual abstraction. Like it's mm. insane that we have as much as we do, mm. but you can hold, I think, what is it? Like magic number seven plus or minus two. That's what mm. they say in the psychological mm. literature. You can actually hold like seven cognitive objects at once and mm. work with it. That's it. Mm. You start adding more and you just forget them. Right, right, your right. short term memory isn't great. Your long term right. memory isn't great. Right. But like you're, you're, you've got so much hardware that's like, that's zeroed in on people. Right. It's like, right. that can pick up on tiny muscle twitches in people's face and like tell you things about that without, even if, if that's not going through a level of conscious processing. Mm. Um, and I think like that has emerged as, as the, 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 what the method by which like really serious students of all sorts of things, like actually view the world. It's like the famous one is like sailors will say, um, mm. you know, ah, oh, the sea, she's, she's angry. Right, 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 she's, she's, she's right. looking for a fight. Like, right. How do you know this? Right, right, right. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you could get a meteorologist to like, you know, analyze a whole bunch of stuff and tell yeah. you this and this and this. Yeah. yeah. But he'd have to have textbooks and think about it. Yeah. And the sailor just knows. Has that instinct. intuition, has that sort of human relationship with it. The human relationship with it. Right. And he does that by virtue of like having a relationship with the sea. A good tie-in to the Neocidic names that we mentioned before. Mm. Buber has his famous idea of the I-thou relationship. Mm. So that would be perhaps an example of taking an it, taking an object, and making it into a subject, making it into a thou. Right. When you approach the sea and you're like, oh, she's a feisty woman. Mm. You've now taken something which you've objectified and which you, and because it's an object, you can use, you can abuse, you can, you can um, disregard its, its needs and concerns, but now it's, now it's a person. Right. Now it's a thou. So there is something about, yeah, and that goes back to that maybe space as well. Like maybe, maybe the woman, maybe the ocean is not a woman. <laughs> maybe that is nonsense, but maybe as well, if we, I, I like to think about these things as, as metaphors that we, that we bring to frame our reality mm. and they're beneficial. So why not use them? Well, at the minimum, the metaphors, the beneficial, but I think also like structurally they're, they're actually like isotropic. Like if you, you take the same set of data about the sea, right? Mm. You feed it to the meteorologist, you feed it to like the, the anthropomorphizing sailor. Mm. Like they both got the same set of data about the sea, mm. right? They're mm. both working the same set of facts. Mm. They're both like correct in their analysis. Right. They're just, they're just structuring their interaction with it differently. Mm. And by structuring his interaction with the sea as like interaction with a person by, you know, as, as the Buber point, right? He's I, thou, instead of I, it. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, showing up for to that interaction and he's yeah. learning a lot more and he's yeah. able to do a lot more that the meteorologist isn't. Right. Um, right. And I don't, I don't know that there's even a sense in which like, I, like obviously the sea isn't a biological person. It doesn't have like organs and stuff, but does it make sense to, to speak of it as something that's like structurally person-like mm. in a lot of ways? Yeah. Yeah. It acts like a person. I, I love this idea and I love it sort of beyond the sea talking about the world as a whole, as a mm. person. There's, um, do you know Lovelock, the scientist, he, this is a great story. NASA was trying to figure out whether there was um, the possibility of life on Mars. So there was a team of scientists under the uh, great scientist Carl Sagan. Oh. And yeah, you bet. And Lovelock was one of the scientists who were there. And they were thinking about how do we figure out, and they were all thinking about sending a probe, if we send a probe, how will we know? And Lovelock's like, no, no, no. If we can assume that life on Mars needs the same conditions for life on Earth, then we can just sort of beam some protons, some lasers at it, 
And when they bounce back to us, we can see if they're passing through an atmosphere. And if there's no atmosphere, there's no possibility of life. If there is an atmosphere, there is a possibility of life. Mm. That's what they did. Um, and they found out that there was, and that saved them like many millions of dollars. Um, and Lovelock was like, hey, if that's the case about Mars, then Earth as well has this ozone that is allowing it to live, and it's how and it's interacting with other objects of Earth which keep it alive. And he, he began to look at the relationship between the ozone, uh, the atmosphere, and the algae in the, in the sea. And the way that they, they're in this dance of self-regulation. Where, get out of here. Yeah, 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 get this. So this is what Lovelock discovered, that when the sun is coming down to the ocean, um, if the sun heats up the ocean too much, then the life, the fishes at the top, the fish rather, at the top of the ocean begin to die. So something needs to stop it from warming up too much. So this algae begins to grow at the surface of the water because it's nice and warm, so the conditions are right for it to grow. Mm. When it begins to grow and it's, and, and because it's growing there, it's blocking out the sunlight because the sun isn't penetrating through the algae and it's bouncing back. And the, the water now can be, can be cooler beneath it. But because, but when that- So that like saves the fish. That saves the fish. But if it gets too cold, the fish can't have the water too cold either. So what happens when it, begins, when it gets too cold, the algae begins slowly to stop producing and to start sort of drifting away and dispersing, allowing the sunlight to come back through. Wow. Right? So you have this so perfect- extreme cold kills the algae, yeah. it stops it yeah. from growing. Yeah, right at the surface. So right at the surface, you have this fluctuation, which then a little lower, you have this perfect range of temperature between like two or three degrees that just stay in that dance and balance between the clouds, the algae and the sun that are just in this sort of cosmic dance regulating one another. That's beautiful. And how are the clouds relevant to this? The, the clouds play a part in the story, and I forget what part they play, because uh -huh. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but, so, but Lovelock is the Lovelock, yeah, and he, he, he came with his theory. He began yeah. to extrapolate this to other systems um, within nature, that the oceans need, need, the, need the fish, and the fish need the plants, the plants need the, need the grass, and the grass need the tree. All the way until he like created this full structure called Gaia theory, that the entire Earth is one large organism, one living body that regulates itself and keeps check of itself and feeds itself. And, and one, one part of excrement becomes the nutrients for the other. And it's sort of this large living object. Guy theory like, is not particularly in vogue in the sciences today, but... I, I watched Captain Planet as a kid. I take it as given. You take it as given. It's, yeah. it's, 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 that's uh, I think you can't evidence. enjoy Captain Planet. Right. Peer review Captain Planet. Yeah, yeah. It's now, but I think it's just being co-opted by the sciences, and it's now called systems theory. Um, right. Well, that sounds a lot more respectable. Here's your Gaia. research grant. <laughs> right. I mean, Gaia was the Greek god of Earth, right? Greek titan of Greek Earth. Greek titan of Earth. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I think, so you have these ideas, you have these madrashim of like, Adam Harishan, like the first man, Adam, being the size of the earth. Whoa. What does that mean? That means like there's some sort of anthropomorphic relation between the earth as one whole living body and us, the human, as part of that relationship. And I mean, Adam, Adam, of course, actually means earth. Exactly, Adama, yeah, yeah, beautiful, yeah. And when we get back into that relationship, then we stop seeing ourselves as separate objects and separate entities. And, and like we stop competing and fighting over resources and stop like raping this mother earth who's just part of us. That's like, that's, that's the mystics. It's like, let's stop being cancerous objects within this body that is all of us. And let's start to cooperate and get along and live in peace and harmony and love. And that's Messiah, that's Nirvana. Like that's how I see it. Mm. Very interesting. Cause it's like, well, 
there's this line by the Baal Shem Tov, it comes to the Kamano teachings. Um, I think I think it's in Rabbi Nachman Kalas's translations. He says, um, uh, Baal Shem Tov, he says, the aspect of the Messiah is universal compassion. Mm. And I thought, well, that's, ain't that something? Mm. Um, and I think, like, part of it is, like, there's, there's this simpatico where it's, like, people understanding themselves as part of, like, a, a, a bigger organism. Mm, yeah, yeah. To some degree. Yeah. It, it engenders this, like, profound natural compassion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's integral. I think that's really at the core of the mystic's, like, desire for the world to see itself as it really is, like, one integrated organism. I think a big part of um, of clubbing is actually that as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. To have sort of that mass uh, sort of experience where the whole entity like becomes one object. Yeah. The individual dissolves into the, the movement of the group. Right, right. And then the whole group is, is interacting with the DJ. Yeah. As a single like yeah. meta organism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely see that like in many ways. You see that at like, um, yeah, like a music festival where like the entire place is just like literally dancing to the same beat like they're, they're like they're unified in that larger moment together and you see something like this also like used negatively like movements like national socialism right <laughs> in germany they they use that same desire of like sort of that that herd mentality where you get the whole place just to like roar in unison mm. to to one evil man's beckon mm. um so yeah this the, the idea of like this this great unity that can be engendered in a group dynamic is like is can be both used like positively and negatively. Well, it's interesting you you mentioned specifically that because the, the other way I was thinking of it is um, I'm trying to remember where the, where the story comes from. I want to say it was maybe like one of uh, platoon of someone somewhere. There's like a whole bunch of soldiers that don't have like weapons mm. and they can't. Well, like, they might get weapons later, but they don't have weapons yet. Mm. Um, it's like, what do we do with them? I think the British soldiers are American soldiers. And, like, the, the the what, medium ups? Not the high high ups, but, like, the people who are running the show at the time, like, right, we're going to march in drills. Mm. It's like, why? It's like, no, we're just going to do drills. Nice. And, like, we can't do anything else, but we do drills. Um, and that's, like, profound and transformational. And I, I remember, like, thinking about this and reading about this back at the time. Be like, wow, that's really interesting. And then, like, some of it fades, but you still got this, this, this thought of, like, yeah, but drill is really important. Mm, mm, Marching in formation mm, is really important. Mm. I think part of it is just, like, it psychologically syncs you up. Yeah. So like, yeah, with one another. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. There was this, there's this quote I read that, like, actually what keeps soldiers fighting on the front line is, like, protection of other people in their immediate mm, surroundings. That, that uh, camaraderie, that, the fact that you yeah. stick together. The camaraderie is what actually gets, gets them to keep to going continue. through it. Wow. Yeah, I want to drop in two thoughts because I think they're important to, to add here. Hmm. Firstly, a prerequisite to achieving that um, that sort of organistic or or unified experience is obviously to let go of the illusion of separate selfness, hmm. um, and that's what the mystics call death or ego death. Um, so one needs to die before they're reborn and re-identify as the whole. I was just reading a sociologist who calls it the re-selfing that you let go of the old conception of self, which is here is me in this, you know, large, like, battle for survival against the rest of these, like, strangers out there, and here is the earth with her limited resources, which, you know, I can make use of for my survival, to, like, re-selfing, to letting that literally die, and then being reborn to be like, no. I'm, when you say literally die, you mean 
symbolically that, die. Um, that well, or that that, that conception, aspect, yeah. that aspect yeah. that that has to that has to actually die. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, using the word die, I'm not talking about a biological death. I'm talking about a death which is more real than biological death. Ah, ah, so, ah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's one aspect. The other aspect which I wanted to, and I, I know that's a lot just to, just to drop that's a and run. It's a lot. Right? Like, the second one? Run. <laughs> but um, the second one is that, that the, the aspiration of the mystic is not to become a sheep in the herd mentality. Um, and I think this is like a great paradox where it's to the aspiration is to find your individuality, to find your diversity within the unity of the whole. Mm. There's this great line which blew my mind when I heard it. I think it's from the, the Piazzetzner. But I might be, it might be another Chassidah but he'll forgive me. That oh when, when Moses, when Moshe Rabbeinu becomes a, a channel for God's for God's message that literally speaks through his throat, says the, says the verse that that God speaks out of Moses' throat. That, and typically we understand this, that Moses becomes so, so humble and so nullified that there's sort of nothing left and he just becomes this clear channel for God's so inspiration the, to shine right. through. So the Holy Spirit can literally speak from his throat. Yeah, without any obstruction of, of what used to be this Moses before. Okay. And, and the Chassidah Shabbat says, no, 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 that's not what's happening. The God isn't speaking through Moses as an empty vessel. It's when Moses becomes most Moses, that's when God is speaking. Oh. Oh. Now there's a good paradox to yeah. chew on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in losing yourself, you find yourself. So, so it's not about becoming sort of a speck in the crowd or a drop in the ocean. It's becoming the entire ocean. In one drop. It's a line I got from a child, by the way. That's a line you got from a child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking about mysticism and metaphors, and he dropped that metaphor on me like an atom bomb. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Being the entire ocean in a single drop. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 12 year old kid. There you go. That's the basic. Mm hmm. That's where it's at. Gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. All right. Slavin. Pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure's been mine. We're um uh, we're coming towards the end of the show. What uh, if people want to look up your stuff? You have a YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I started this uh, what is it two months ago? So like the quality is still improving, and I'm still learning. But if you get it now, you'll like see the progression as it happens. Yeah. Be part of that journey. Comment on stuff now, and he'll probably comment back. That's right. Before I become big and famous, yeah. <laughs> just refuse to look at the comments. Um, the channel is Seekers of Unity, which is a translation from the Aramaic Darshe Yichudcha, um, from the mystical um, poetic liturgy that we say on Friday night. Uh, we we pray to God to guard those who seek His unity, like the apple of His eye. Mm. They should be guarded. So Seekers of Unity. Check it out. Um, the content is, I think it's pretty good. It's pretty well researched and it's pretty, uh, it's going to be fresh because it's going to be like every week, hopefully a new one if I can keep up to that pace. Amen. So uh, like and subscribe as they say. Hey, yo, you've got an upcoming one. I mean, this is going to age horribly, but you got an upcoming, <laughs> <laughs> you got an upcoming one on Aldous Huxley. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Tell me a bit about before yeah. we got started. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing one now on Aldous Huxley. I'm, I'm taking... What I'm doing is I'm taking um, contemporary figures or relatively like modern figures and using them to juxtapose and compare and open a window to a larger tradition, mm. if that makes sense. So I did one on 
Schopenhauer and his relationship to Buddhism. Um, I'm doing one soon on on Spinoza and Kabbalah. Hmm. Um, this one's going to be on Huxley and perennialism. Um, and I'll do one on Jung, hopefully Jung and either Gnosticism or alchemy, which he had a relationship to both. So that's that's going to kind of be Beautiful. the idea, like taking one character and, and linking them, branching them to those movements. Um, yeah, Huxley, Huxley wrote this work called The Perennial Philosophy. Um, as we were chatting before, he's one of the modern perennialists, sort of following the footsteps of William so James. For people at home who don't know, perennialism is roughly the view that... Perennialism is the view that there's a core of religion, there's a core truth that all religions share, irrespective of the differences which they exhibit in their exterior forms and, and rituals and cultural um, aspects. Um, and then if you peel away, you come to the same truths that lie at the core, which is the truths of mysticism that we've been discussing um, recently. Um, there's a historical sort of trajectory to the movement that begins in the Renaissance, very much pulling from Neoplatonism and Hermeticism and Gnosticism. It's a bit much to like explain now, but well, hopefully people have to show up exactly. on YouTube if yeah. they want to hear the full story. People are gonna have to. Uh, to hit that if channel. people if people Google your name, will they find some more content on you? I haven't. There... No, no, no. I haven't. I've like intentionally not linked my name to the channel just yet. Well, now <laughs> you have. <laughs> Keeping the distance. Um, yeah, we've broken the fourth wall here. Yeah, I guess. So. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you check if you check yeah, so far all of my content just about there's two other things I did an interview. And I did a class on Gamatrio, which I don't think either of them are spectacular. Mm. Like, check out the channel. It's uh, Seekers of Unity. And um, I'm very into perennialism right now. Like, I'm very, very into it. Looking at Jewish characters who played a role in influencing perennialism, influenced by perennialism. It's a really, really cool movement. Um, if you haven't heard about it, like, go home and Google it. Like, Yeah, it's um, a cool one. Yeah, so Huxley's one of those characters who's, who's in that crowd. And I'm looking at his trajectory um, as an atheist, uh, a scientist, hardcore scientist, as he moves, he begins to doubt his sort of hard, deterministic, reductionistic worldview. He has a bit of spacus, and then he like eventually, whoopsies, sorry about that, spilled the water. Um, he eventually becomes a mystic. Um, so I'm looking at that little story over there, which is an interesting one. Yeah, no worries. Tell me, do you have a, you have a Hasidic Shavuot before we, before we bounce? Oh, Hasidic Shavuot. Um, I'll share one with you that... Should I use this for the water? No, I'll leave the water. I'll leave the water. Um, I'll share one with you that I that I shared with you already just because it's the first one that comes to mind, so I apologize. I mean, I'm not apologizing. Get to hear it again. It's a good part. Sure. Um, I was just listening. I was driving back from Melbourne, and I was listening to a talk from Daniel Matt. Um, he's an academic scholar. Of, he just did the translation yeah, of the Zohar. Yeah, yeah. He Amazing. just completed like a 13-year translation of the Pritzker edition, which is beautiful. Wow. Mamish Amazing. Um, so he, he was speaking about the, the Gemara, um, is it in Chagiga? I think it is, of the, uh, known as the Arba Shnifan Solopardes, the four individuals who, uh, I think actually, I think it is, the aftermath is definitely in the Chagiga. I don't know if it's, I think it's quoted once or twice with some variations. Um, the four who enter, um, the Pardes, the paradise, the, the garden, um, to sort of glimpse the divine, Mm. Um, and who are, who are the four characters? I think it's Ben Ben Zoma, Ben Azai, uh, Rabbi Akiva, and the other one. Acher, right, right. Acher. Elisha Ben Um And one of them, one of them dies. One of them goes crazy. One of them becomes a heretic, and only Akiva, who enters in peace, leaves in peace. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and Matt, Matt says, I don't know if this is his own idea or if he's quoting from someone, but either how it's a great one. He says that when one embarks on the path into mysticism, it's not that one of those four things will happen to you. All four will happen to you. A bit of you will have to die, as we spoke about. A bit of you will go a bit crazy, or at least the rest of the world will think you're crazy. Who is that? To be, to be well-adjusted to an insane world is no sign of honor. Mm. <laughs> um, a bit of you will become a bit of a heretic because there's some, there's some like, subversive ideas that challenge like the norms of, of orthodoxy. Um, and then after all those three, hopefully a bit of you will emerge in peace and be able to like give back to society and bring something forward from the abyss, from the chaos, from the darkness. Amen. May you emerge in peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Great to have you, man. Likewise. God bless. Thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny.